Well, he is risen. Great. Thank you. Amen. Uh, I am glad to be here. I've actually never preached on Easter Sunday, um, so you guys are taking a risk by being here. Uh, no, thanks for, for coming. Um, let me just say at the outset that it is hard to get to church <laughs> on Sunday morning. Um, my wife and I have twins, three-month-old twins and a two-year-old toddler, and uh, we, we know that it is difficult to get to church uh, on Sunday, especially a day like today where everyone's all dressed up and there's extra stuff going on. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, especially those for whom it was difficult to get here. Thank you for coming um, to this space this morning, and I, I hope to honor the efforts that you put in with a worshipful service uh, together. Now, toward this end, uh, I want to do something a little different before I jump into the sermon proper. Um, I want us to consciously leave behind the stressful, at times distracting nature of our weekly lives. Um, I want us to deliberately enter into this sacred space. And to be mindful here for 25, 30 minutes maybe. Um, I know that it's difficult to be mindful and truly in place during the week. And so if you need to close your eyes or take a deep breath, I just I want to take a moment to, to leave that behind so that we can be here together because I think that God is here. So let's just take a moment before moving on. Well, he is risen. Uh, No need to respond to that. That's why we're here this morning. (laughs) Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He has. He's alive. And Christians actually believe that we too will rise from the dead someday. We believe that. But let me just begin with a question this morning, okay? Why does this matter? Why does the resurrection matter? Or to put it differently, does the resurrection, does it have value in and of itself? Does it have intrinsic value? It's a rhetorical question, so think about it. Now to kind of get your wheels turned, let me just propose a few scenarios for you, okay? Imagine this. Imagine if Jesus was resurrected, but we all were not. So we could experience, you know, a life of freedom from sin and evil for about 60, 70, 80 years, if you're lucky, and then we die. Would that type of arrangement be appealing to you? That's scenario one. Now, on the other hand, too, imagine if we all were resurrected, we rise from the dead, we look around, no Jesus. Imagine if by his death, Jesus bought our resurrection, but Jesus remained dead. 
Would that be appealing to you? In other words, like I said before, does resurrection have value in and of itself? Or why is the resurrection important? That's the question that I hope to answer through this message this morning. Now, to show you guys my cards early on, I think the resurrection is important for one and only one reason. It's not so that we can just live forever, just be happy endlessly, no more tears. The resurrection is important because it unlocks for us an eternal relationship with Jesus, okay? Our resurrection is important because it connects us to the resurrected one forever. That's why the resurrection matters, okay? That's what I'm going to talk about today's message. So the text that I chose uh, wasn't actually the first text that I chose. I was planning to preach in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is a classic Easter uh, passage. Um, but actually, I spent some time with, with the Lord, with Jesus, just no interruptions, just one-on-one, and, and the Lord broke me and, and pointed me to this text in Philippians chapter 3, which I'll get to in a moment. This text, this five-verse passage, I think spells out the very truth that I'm dancing around, which is that the only important thing in life, the one thing, if there is one, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. So my purpose this morning is really quite simple. Uh, It's to lead you in in one of three directions, one of three directions, okay? It's to either lead you further into a relationship with Jesus, further into, there's one, to lead you back into a relationship with Jesus, that's two, or to lead you into a relationship with Jesus for the very first time, one of those three things. Now, wherever you fall in those categories, we'll all be on the same page. This message is for all of us, because I hope we'll agree, leaving this building today, that the one thing that truly matters is a personal relationship with Jesus. So, let's see why Easter really matters, why the resurrection is so important Uh, But before we do that, let's take a moment and pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, I believe that you are here with us. You are alive, which means that you are accessible. We can connect with you. We can relate to you. We can be found in you. We can come home to you. Lord, would you speak? Please, would you speak to us this morning? You've already hammered my heart with this text. I pray that you would touch others with it. 
Be with us this morning and bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so we haven't actually been in a series in Philippians, so let me just say a few words about Philippians before we jump in. Um, Philippians can be found in the New Testament, in the Christian Bible. Uh, its author is the Apostle Paul. So this was a man born a Jew. Uh, he was quite radical and actually persecuted some of the earliest Christians. Famously, though, he became a Christian. <laughs> uh, he encountered Jesus and then became the apostle to the Gentiles or to non-Jewish people. Um, the Apostle Paul plants a church in the town of Philippi, which is in the Roman province of Macedonia. That actually happens in Acts 16, which we'll uh, be preaching from next week. So, funny timing. Um, so, one thing leads to another, and Paul ends up in prison. Paul is persecuted for his gospel ministry. And so, he actually writes this letter to the Philippians, this church that he planted, from prison. We don't know exactly where he was imprisoned. A couple of locations are possible, but he's, he's shackled, he's in jail, he's being held captive. And so the Philippians are anxious. This church that he founded, they're anxious about their leader, their founder. So Paul writes a letter to console them. Uh, Philippians is a letter of consolation. He's trying to encourage an anxious congregation. Um, and one of the ways in which he does this is by distinguishing what doesn't matter and what really matters. <laughs> you see this throughout the letter. So if he can show them that what they're anxious about doesn't really matter, then maybe their anxiety will, will fade away. So if you go to chapter 3 in Philippians, Paul comes to a climax. This is actually his sixth consolatory argument, you could call it where he tells us what is more important, what matters more than anything else. Anything else. And this is all to comfort a grieving church. So there were these folks, I don't know if I should call them folks, opponents, um, not so positive people, who were, who were preaching this gospel that required circumcision, a surgery to be saved. They were telling non-Jews, these Gentiles, that in order to become a Christian, you had to be circumcised, you had to obey the Mosaic law, the law we find in the Old Testament, you had to become Jewish to become a Christian. They were preaching this. And so Paul, Paul says, this is crazy. And actually in verses 2 and 3 in Philippians, he calls these folks dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. I would not recommend this, okay? Don't call your opponents that. But Paul does. He says these people place confidence in the flesh. They depend on the flesh in order to make sense of their relationship with God. They think that their acceptability in the eyes of God depends on things that they do or things that they do to their bodies. Paul then actually says, if anyone should place confidence in the flesh, if anyone should depend on that stuff for their acceptability before God, it's me. It's me. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a reader and speaker of the original tongue. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Seven reasons Paul gives, a kind of resume that says, if anyone should be doing this sort of thing, it's me. And then we get to our passage in verse 7. So if you haven't already, would you now turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. In our pew Bibles, it can be found on page 981. Yes, the Bible is a long book. Um, Toward the end, it's in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3. Now I'm going to do something unorthodox, uh, which I have done before. (laughs) I'm going to read my own translation, actually, of this passage from the Greek. Um, I'm not claiming that my translation is better than the professional ones that you have, um, but I'm hoping that through it, I can lead you into the heart of what Paul is uh, trying to communicate. Some of the English translations I struggle to do this, and so I'd encourage you to compare yours with mine, and hopefully the differences and similarities will bring clarity, not confusion, to the passage. Okay. So Philippians 3, chapter 7. After listing these seven attributes that he could put confidence in, this is what Paul says. Whatever things used to be of value to me, I now consider them worthless when compared to Christ. In truth, I consider all things worthless when compared to the much better thing that is a relationship with my Lord Jesus Christ. In comparison to that, all other things have become worthless. I even consider them trash. My true hope, then, my true hope is as follows, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Skip to verse 10. That I may know Him, experiencing the power of His resurrection, sharing with Him in His suffering, being made like Him even in death, with the hope that I might attain to full Resurrection from the dead. From the dead. So this passage, this huge final argument in Philippians, I think can be divided into two sections. So in verse 7 through most of verse 8, Paul talks about this value shift. Since becoming a Christian, he sees things in his life differently. Value shift. The rest of the passage, which is one sentence in Greek, it's the end of verse 8 through verse 11, Paul describes his one thing. The one thing that matters more than anything else. He really just describes this in different terms, okay? Different images. And spells out actually what it entails or implies. So value shift in Paul's one thing. Now, you might have noticed that I skipped a verse uh, in my reading, verse 9. I think, based on the flow of thought, this verse should really have parentheses around it. It really is a parenthetical comment. Um, But scholars, I think they've paid far too much attention to this verse 
Because it does include a debated phrase, which I will talk about, a phrase that can be translated in one of two ways. Um, All that I'll say at this point is that this is not the key verse of our passage. Here, Paul actually distinguishes the basis of his relationship with God from the basis according to his opponents. That's what he does, and I'll mention it, but it really is not the key verse of this text, so that's why I skipped over it in the reading. Um, But before we just dive in in a little more detail, keep in mind that this whole passage, this short five-verse passage, really says that for Paul, for Paul, the most important thing in his life is his relationship with Jesus. That's what it means. But let's just dig in, and I'll note a few details so we can really feel Paul's heart here. So in verse 7... Again, this is looking towards the seven items that he listed before. He says, Such things which were for me profitable, the language is that of the realm of accounting or bookkeeping. So it's kind of like such things that I I would have put in the, the profit margin of my ledger. Those things, I now have come to consider them, perfect tense in Greek, Something has happened which has made me reconsider those items, and I now label them in the loss column. Okay? Why? Why does Paul label them differently? He says, because of Christ, on account of Christ. Kind of vague, but he will amplify or clarify this in the next few sentences. In verse 8, He says, in truth, really, what I'm trying to say is that right now, I consider all things loss. Everything in my life that I could depend on for my own sense of righteousness, I put in the loss column. Why? Well, here he gives us a little more detail. He says, because of, get this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul just pulling out all the stops here. When compared to this other thing, this one thing, everything in my life is now seen as loss. But what does he mean by knowledge? The knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, Let me say, too, this this phrase, my Lord, this is the only time Paul ever uses that personal address, my Lord. But what does he mean by knowledge? Is he talking about facts, information, detached data about Jesus, the historical Jesus? This, This word in Greek, this refers to relationship, personal knowledge acquaintanceship, familiarity, intimacy. If you read the Old Testament, you you hear language, this knowing God language. That had to do with the knowledge of husband and wife, parent-child, best friend, the best friend, knowledge. When compared to that, 
Paul can label everything in his life loss, worthless, empty. That's how important it is. He restates this in one final way at the end, or at middle, I guess, of verse 8. He says, on account of this, or when compared to this, because of this, all things have been evacuated of meaning. That's the word. Same root as the word loss, but I see something full, and almost like a vacuum sucks the worth right out of it. When compared to my relationship with Jesus, everything has been made empty. So much so that I consider it trash, table scraps, the kind of thing you'd push off the table for the dogs. He's mentioned dogs before. Worthless, worthless when compared to that one thing. Well, now Paul elaborates on this one thing. He uses a variety of phrases to tell us what this looks like, what what it is. Now, there's three ways in which he describes it, uh, and I will talk about verse 9, but let me just get into it. He says, really, my one hope, all I want, as I'm here languishing in prison, all I want is to gain Christ and to be found in Him. Two ways of saying basically the same thing. To gain is the same language from the counting, the profit in that margin. Paul wants everything in his life to be listed in the loss margin. And he wants to have one thing in the profit margin. And that one thing is Jesus. Paul wants to possess Christ, but he also wants Christ to possess him. He says, I want to be found in him. If you're looking for me, I want you to find me in Christ, at home in Christ. This is the language of final judgment. Where will God find us at the last day? Paul says, I want to be found in Christ. I want to be located in him. I want my identity to be utterly inseparable from His. That's that's what I want. Well, here we get to the parenthetical where Paul uh, establishes the basis of that relationship. What does his relationship with God depend on? He says, I don't want to have my own righteousness. I don't want to possess righteousness from the law. No, I want to have a righteousness which which comes from God, which depends upon faith. Skipped around, but he says, I don't want a righteousness that's my own, but I want a righteousness that comes through pistis Christu, is the phrase. Now, this can either be translated faith of Christ in the King James, or faith in Christ in NIV, ESV. Paul is either saying that I want my righteousness to depend on my faith in Christ or Christ's faithfulness on my behalf. Scholars have (laughs) written volumes on this. So let me just cut to the chase and tell you what I think. 
I think it is both, friends. Paul is saying that I want my righteousness, my acceptability before God, to depend on not something that I have, that I can get for myself. I want it to flow through this channel that's called faith. The Son of God faithfully became human, faithfully died on a cross for us. He was faithful in his mission. But in order to be located in Christ, you have to have faith in him. Faith, then, becomes the channel, this way of connecting to Jesus who wins for us righteousness and salvation. Paul wants a relationship with Jesus that does not depend on his own accolades, on his own achievements, resume, his fleshly boasting. No. He wants a relationship that depends on Jesus, that's accessible by faith alone. That's all I'll say about that. Well, the final way in which he describes this relationship is by using the same word that we saw before. So I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in Him. Verse 10, I want to know Him. I want to know Him. I want to really know Him. When you know Christ, when you share the identity of Christ, you're going to share the fate of Christ. To be located in Christ, yes, it means that you'll experience the power of his resurrection. Yep, yep. But you'll also experience fellowship in his suffering. You'll be conformed to his image in his death with the hope that you'll be resurrected with him. One day. Paul is experiencing suffering right now. And he tells the anxious Philippians, guys, it's okay. This means that I'm connected to Jesus. And if that's true, it can only go up from here. In this passage, I hope we've seen... I hope that Paul has one thing he deems important. It's not his apostleship. It's not his righteous status before God that he can possess. It's not even just a hope to live forever. Paul's one thing is his relationship with Jesus relationship with Jesus Christ. Now this message really hit home for me over the past few weeks. I, uh, I came to know Jesus when I was about 12 years old. I uh, heard an evangelist give a gospel presentation and I was just pierced to the heart and I believed it. I believed what he was saying. <laughs> and I was enamored with Christ. I I gobbled up my first Bible with the study notes and everything and journaled for hours and 
had more free time, I guess, then, but I, I would just sit at the feet of Jesus. Had this youthful, innocent, almost naive, beautifully naive relationship with Jesus. Then I felt called to the ministry, and I went to Bible college and got a few degrees and read theology and learned some languages, and now I'm here as a pastor. Friends, I've come subconsciously to depend on those things for my acceptability before God. I've done that. The other day I listened to a sermon by favorite preacher, Crawford Loritz, preaching to a bunch of pastors at Moody where I graduated. Guys who have resources, vision, training, staff, ideas, you name it, everything. Crawford looked at him. He asked him one question. It's like I was the only one there in the room. He said, do you love him? Do you love him? None of that stuff matters. None of it. If you don't love Jesus, okay? So Christians who are here, Easter Sunday, do you love him? Is your relationship with Jesus the most important thing in your life? Is it? For those of you who, you know, used to be Christians, used to be associated with Jesus, guys, he's waiting for you. He never stopped waiting for you. For those of you who've never wanted to be associated with Jesus or with the church, I'm not asking you to join some movement or institution What I'm telling you is that a relationship with the person of Jesus is the only thing that will ever satisfy you. Without Jesus, you will, you will always just be a little empty. I promise. St. Augustine, 1600 years ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. What's your one thing? Your one things. I'll tell you what I think it needs to be. (laughs) It needs to be Jesus. Jesus. Well, I'm going to pray. The praise team wants to come up. You guys can. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you all a chance to respond to what I am saying, to what I hope God is saying. This message is for all of us. It's not just for those who aren't Christians. 
We all need Jesus as much as the other. So I'm going to pray for those three categories of persons wherever you fall. (laughs) Um, And I'd encourage you to pray with me. Just remember, friends, that Jesus, he really loves you. (laughs) He does. And he can't wait to welcome you home. Let's pray. Lord, it's all about you, Jesus. It's only ever been about you. If it's not about you, something is terribly wrong. Lord, I pray for the Christians who are here with us this morning or listening online, who, like me, depended on other things or are depending on other things for their acceptability in your sight. I pray that you'd pull them from that and that you'd return them to a vibrant, youthful, innocent relationship with you. Lord, for those who have maybe wandered or strayed, I pray that you would meet them here this morning. Convince them you've never stopped waiting for them to come home. For those who are here this morning who have no interest in Christianity, that's fine. But Lord, may they be interested in Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that those people would come to you, be welcomed by you, that they would find themselves in you, in you alone. Help us this resurrection day to connect with the resurrected one, the true meaning of Easter. We love you, Lord, and we do pray that you'd be with us in our worship. Make us more like you and connect us anew with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.